Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 42, the book of Matthew, chapters 11 and 12. We wrapped up our prior lesson with a message of, of awareness to a, to a sad but, but a dangerous reality within Christianity in modern times, in which not only is it acceptable within the academic branch of the Church for agnostics, even atheists, to create commentaries on the various books of the Bible, but that these commentaries have found their way into uh, the desks, onto the desks of prominent theologians and into the course material of many of our seminaries. Now while I can't know for certain what the motivation is for a person who neither believes in God nor in Christ to write papers and instruction material on the Bible, all right, in general I don't see an intent to intentionally deceive the reader. I mean, for whatever their reasons, these scholars have chosen Bible history or the biblical languages or ancient literature as their specialty. So it is from expertise in these scholastic disciplines, not in any personal knowledge or experience with God, that they establish their authority to be a Bible commentator and a teacher. Now, I incorporated in that lesson, speaking about, my warning to you about them. Because of a comment that Jesus made in Matthew 11, 25, and 26, part of which is essentially a brief prayer of praise that He made for the crowd surrounding Him to hear it. Christ's comment made reference to the sophisticated and the educated, or more literally, to the wise and the learned, but it was intended as sharp sarcasm towards those Pharisees and scribes and Jewish academics that operated the synagogues and, and uh, uh, instructed in, in, in the religious activities and the, in the religious ac uh, academies, all the different religious scenarios. And Yeshua clearly had a bone to pick with these fellows, because earlier in Matthew He referred to this group as wolves in sheep's clothing. That is, they were deceivers that harmed the flock, whether or not their intent was to deceive. How did they deceive? Well, the more nuanced answer is going to come a little later in the book of Matthew, but I'm going to quote some of it for you now. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, this is Christ speaking. He says, Thus by your tradition, you make null and void the Word of God. You hypocrites, Yeshiao, Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless, because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. Now, in the way it's used here, 
Man-made rules are what at times are called traditions or traditions of the elders. Doctrines more referred to biblical instruction and principles. As with most things said, they are neither black nor white, but rather exist in shades of gray. That is, Yeshua isn't denouncing all traditions as unscriptural. But He is denouncing the ones that in essence go against the biblical truth and the intent of God. In Matthew 11.25 and 26, He lays this accusation directly at the feet of the Jewish religious leaders, mostly aimed at the synagogue leadership, which was dominated by the sect of the Pharisees. Now the reality is that such a negative comment can also be directly applied to many Christian theological institutes, seminaries, and church leaders. I mean, that the church is fractured into at least 3,000 identifiable denominations is proof of itself that man-made rules, instead of the Bible, have long ago become the bedrock of Christianity. And Yeshua says, we're not going to get true divine revelation from them if that's who they are. Now again, as a general but not all inclusive statement. Because God withholds revelation from them, instead, we're told, He gives it to ordinary folks because it pleases Him to do so. Who are the ordinary folks? Those who trust God's Word. They're obedient to Him, not all puffed up with pride and self-deceived with false beliefs and traditions that always have a hidden agenda behind them. Let's move on to the final four verses of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1237, 1237. And we're going to start reading at verse 27. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 27. My Father has handed over everything to me. Indeed, no one fully knows the Son except the Father. No one fully knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son wishes to reveal Him. Come to me, all of you who are struggling and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yeshua makes startling claim after startling claim in the last half of Matthew 11 and his statement in verse 27 that the Father has handed everything or all things over to me only adds to it. I imagine that his listeners, and it's not entirely clear who they are, weren't certain about what he meant. They were in good company. Because to this day, there's still no universal agreement over his intent. Now, we should begin to understand it by, as always, taking it in context. And the context is that he has just finished saying that the self important Jewish religious leadership are not going to understand God's 
revelations. So his next claim is only for those who don't fall into that category of people. He then follows this up with the revelation and wisdom saying that the Father has handed over everything to Him. Then he follows that up with saying that only the Son truly knows the Father and only the Father truly knows the Son. See, look, we are entering the realm of the enormous and the mysterious. And it's challenging to comment on some of the things Christ is saying in any kind of a succinct way. I mean that in the sense that we live in a bumper sticker, short attention span world that craves having the complex reduced to a sentence or less of explanation. That which is by its very nature necessitates deep study and prayer and much nuance to understand correctly and to apply properly to our lives is to be described by a glib and very short phrase. And I promise you that, that what comes next, the Sabbath controversy, is even more complex. Now that said, modern Christianity has used this statement about the Father turning everything, or depending on your Bible version, all things, over to Christ as if it was a mammoth Christmas tree on which every type of ornament can be hung. There is simply no way around the fact what is meant by and included in all things can seem ambiguous. Because in the English language, that term is by nature general, it's non-specific. So great liberties have been taken to use this statement to validate any number of man-made church doctrines. For instance, some say it means that the Father has handed over the entire physical universe and spiritual world to Christ and then gone into retirement. Or it means that since Jesus is now in charge, that whatever the Father has previously ordained can now be updated and changed because He's given His Son the authority to do so. Some say that it's pointing towards what He's about to say in the next couple of verses. That's a bunch of wisdom sayings. Now, I suggest this. If we simply remove the paragraph changes and the verse markings that our Bibles have in them, the meaning becomes a little more clear. See, it bears repeating that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that existed in Jesus' time or would for the next 150 years, had no chapters, paragraphs, and verse markings. While on the one hand, these sorts of simple devices make our ability to reference various parts of the Bible easier to read, study, and communicate by kind of breaking up the narratives into smaller bite-sized chunks, they can also misguide us. How so? Well, because in Western literature, chapters and paragraphs indicate definite changes in the flow of words such as the, 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 the end of one scene, the beginning of another, 
or the end of one thought and the beginning of another. And because we find in most Bible translations a paragraph change between verses 26 and 27, then we think that Christ has ended one train of thought and moved on to the next. I want to remove those markings. I want to read it to you in the way that I think may make the meaning of these things or all things or everything more clear. Matthew 11:25 through 27, without paragraph, without verse markings, so on. It was at that time Yeshua said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you concealed these things from the sophisticated and educated and revealed them to ordinary folks. Yes, Father, I thank you that it pleased you to do this. My Father has handed everything over to me. He goes on next to speak of the Son and the Father knowing each other. See, it's my opinion that the best choice is to connect the statement concerning these things which the Father has concealed, these things, in verse 25 with the everything of verse 27. That is, the Father has turned over the knowledge of all revelatory wisdom to Yeshua. It's not an issue of a transfer of possession of physical property such as the temple or the entire planet. Nor is it about turning over the possession of literary property, such as the Law Code, the Law of Moses, or the entire Old Testament. Remember, Matthew has structured his entire Gospel around a handful of concepts, among which is that Jesus is wisdom. He is the tangible form, He is the embodiment of wisdom. And wisdom is to be understood as meaning divinely sourced knowledge. Yet another concept that Matthew puts forth is that Yeshua is the second Moses. And thus, when we add these verses I just quoted to the statement that no one fully knows the Son except the Father, and no one fully knows the Father except the Son, it connects nicely to Moses in Exodus chapter 13, uh, rather 33, chapter 33. Uh, Exodus 33, 11 through 14. Adonai would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. Then he would return to camp, but the young man who was his assistant, Yahshua, the son of Nun, uh, Joshua, never left the inside of the tent. And Moshe said to Adonai, Look, you say to me, make these people move on, but you haven't let me know whom you will be sending with me. Nevertheless, you have said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now please, if it's really the case that I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I will understand you and continue finding favor in your sight. Moreover, keep on seeing this nation as your people. He answered, Set your mind at rest, my presence will go with you after all." Now both Moses and Jesus speak of knowing the Father and the Father knowing them. But then notice how this thought ends with the concept of rest. 
God tells Moses to rest because his presence will go with him into the wilderness. And in Matthew 11.29, Yeshua tells his followers that if they'll take on his yoke, they will find rest. This is not a coincidence. So Yeshua knowing the Father fully, the Father knowing the Son fully, at least includes the idea of having mutual knowledge. And as always, we must understand this in a general, not a precise or all-inclusive without exception sense. Now, I caution this because another common Christian doctrine, especially in the evangelical branch of the church, is that Yeshua's knowledge is a carbon copy of the Father's, which then makes them co-equals. In other words, the doctrine is that Jesus and God the Father are equally omniscient. However, this doctrine is clearly dashed in any number of statements out of Yeshua's own mouth, including this one as perhaps his most famous concerning the subject in Matthew 24 verses 34 to 36. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But when that day and hour will come, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. So here Yeshua confesses there are things, there is knowledge which the Father holds, but it's not been imparted to the Son. Now we need not see this as a contradiction to Matthew 11:27, but rather we just need to understand that the words of the various authors of the Bible and the words of the many Bible characters who are quoted are similar to how we talk in everyday speech. Everything and all doesn't have to mean 100%, and frankly it usually doesn't. Rather, it more typically means the majority, but with some exceptions. No matter how we might wish to nuance and understand what Yeshua meant by this statement of the Son knowing the Father and the Father of the Son, we must once again put on our first century Jewish mindset and try to see this the way the Jews who heard Him would have taken it. Clearly, Christ was setting Himself in the position of being the Son, just as clearly the Father meant God the Father and not Yeshua's own human father, Joseph. So Yeshua was saying that He was the Son of God, who possessed the same wisdom that God the Father had, and that He, God, was the one who would reveal divine revelation to whomever He chose. Yeshua was making a strong case for His own divinity and all that came with it. Well, now that He has made this pretty straightforward claim, He takes it a step further. In verse 28, He says that because of who He is, all who have struggled and burdened, are, are burdened can find rest in Him. I think the King James Version translates these words, words the best and certainly the most literally. The 
King James Version says this in Matthew 11:28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Yeshua was making a word play in order to make an illustration. Now, the English words labor and heavy laden play well with the final word of the passage, which is rest. These three words translate the Greek words kopiao, fortizo, and anapuao. And they all work together to form a mental picture for his Jewish listeners of hard labor, heavy loads, and then a welcome break, a rest to allow the body to refresh and re energize. The focus of the passage is that it is Yeshua. Who's going to provide this welcome break? He then continues with this wordplay by employing the word yoke in its literal sense. A yoke is an uncomfortable looking, heavy wooden device made to join two work animals together in order to pull a wagon or a plow. However, mid sentence, we see that that mental picture that this conjures up is to be taken metaphorically. Jesus is not talking about literal hard manual labor or the carrying of heavy loads, and then some blessed idleness comes about in order to let the exhausted body rejuvenate. Rather, he says, right in the middle of it, learn from me. Learn from me. And the reason they should learn from him, he says, is because he's gentle and meek. Other Bible versions might say humble and gentle, lowly in heart. There's a number of different ways that's translated. But let's just pause here now for a minute. Why does the quality of being gentle or humble and meek make him the better choice for the people seeking truth? What did Christ just finish saying about whom God chooses to give revelatory wisdom and to whom does He withhold it? God gives it to the humble and the meek, which Yeshua just said He is. But He withholds it from the arrogant and the self-important, the scribes and the Pharisees who are standing there listening to all this. Who see their own wisdom as equal to or maybe even above God's. I'm going to repeat. Christ says he is humble and meek. So he qualifies, even from the purely human aspect, to be one that God would choose to reveal heavenly wisdom. Therefore, the people should seek Yeshua for true knowledge and wisdom, not those that they had been listening to. So the term yoke in this passage becomes a metaphor. See, in Jewish thought, a yoke is used to mean obedience and subordinates. But it also concludes the idea of education, commitment, and connection. It was common then, it still is among the Jewish Orthodox today, that the yoke is a term used to define a Jew's relationship to the Torah and to the law. 
That is, they speak of the yoke of the Torah or the yoke of the law. And it is intended in these several senses I just told you about. It was and it remains a positive term, not something to avoid. See, the thing to understand is a man could, in a metaphorical sense, yoke himself to the Torah, yoke himself to his wife, yoke himself to his family and his clan, yoke himself to his rabbi, and to a number of other things, all at the same time. So in this way a person could have more than one yoking, but one was never to be yoked to opposing or opposite things. Therefore, Yeshua is saying to change who and what you are currently yoked to. The question for believers then becomes, so what yoke is it that Christ is saying they should discard in favor of His yoke? The standard answer within Christianity is we should shuck off the yoke of the Law of Moses. But the Law of Moses hasn't even been part of the conversation about what it is that Yeshua is speaking about or what He's been denouncing. When Yeshua says that His yoke is light, this is clearly not in contrast to the Biblical Torah, the Law of Moses. Rather, it was in contrast to the burdens of the yoke of man-made traditions. Man-made traditions that was hung upon the necks of the common people by who? The wise and the learned, the scribes and the Pharisees. A yoke that was indeed heavy and full of needless, difficult burdens. By turning people away from those man-made burdens and back to the comforting truth of God's Torah, Jesus offered rest and the sense of peace of mind and soul instead of ceaseless activities that revolved around behaviors rather than a godly attitude and determination. Now, I hope most of you have studied the Torah with me. If you haven't, I kind of wonder why you're trying to follow these lessons on the Gospel of Matthew. You see, you're not as prepared as you could be. You're putting the proverbial cart before the horse. For those who have studied the Torah, then you know it's anything but a system of heavy burdens placed upon us by a stern God. And Jews have certainly never considered it so. Rather, the Torah and the Law instructs us on how to love God and to how to love our fellow man. It tells us how to be in harmony with the universe as God created it, rather than battling against it. It provides for the welfare of the poverty-stricken and the defenseless of society. It provides a proportional and a fair standard for civil and criminal justice. It gives us a perfect moral compass whose needle never deviates 
simply because circumstances change. It provides us with firm and unequivocal definitions of good and evil. It provides us the source for determining our personal worth, our value as human beings. The Torah is the indispensable foundation for all believers, and the New Testament assumes our familiarity with it. So by Yeshua saying, learn from me, he was telling the Jewish people to give up the scribe or the Pharisee they were listening to for their religious instruction, and instead listen to him. He made it abundantly clear back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that the people were to return to, to cling to, to obey the biblical Torah. Every last detail, he said. And if they'll do that with sincere motivation of loving God, they're going to find rest for their souls. And they're going to become members of the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua is using words many of the people hearing him might have found familiar from Jeremiah chapter 6. I mean, this, this is a very dramatic and heartrending passage, but oh man, how this applies to us of this world into the 21st century. Or better to those of us today who claim to worship God but don't pay attention to him. So their disobedience produces a weak faith that is exposed for what it is as they live lives, lives of anxiety and worry and trouble. And without the contentment that comes from meaning and purpose. Let's read Jeremiah chapter 6, 1 through 16 together. Open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. We're going to read the first 16 verses. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 556. Jeremiah chapter 6. Head for cover, people of Benjamin. Get out of Jerusalem. Blow the shofar in Tekoa. Light the beacon in Beit HaKarim. For disaster threatens from the north with great destruction. Although she is beautiful and delicate, I am cutting off the daughter of Zion. Shepherds advance on her with their flocks. All around her they pitch their tents, each grazing his own plot of pasture. Prepare for war against her. Get up. Let's attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day is waning. Evening shadows are lengthening. Get up. Let's attack at night. Let's destroy her palaces. For Adonai Sefaot says this, Cut down her trees and raise a siege ramp against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. In her there is nothing but oppression. Just as a cistern keeps its water fresh, so she keeps her wickedness fresh. Violence and destruction are heard within her, always before me, sickness and wounds. Accept correction, Jerusalem, 
or I will be estranged from you, and I will turn you into a desolate waste, a land without inhabitants. Thus says Adonai Sepaot, they will glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as in a vineyard. One last time, like a grape picker, pass your hand over the vines. To whom should I speak? Whom should I warn? Who will listen to me? Their ears are dull. They can't pay attention. For them, the word of Adonai has become unattractive. It's an object of scorn. This is why I am full of Adonai's fury. I'm weary of holding it back. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the groups of young men gathered. For husbands and wives will be taken together, seniors as well as the very old. Their homes will be turned over to others, their fields together with their wives. Yes, I will stretch out my hand against those who are living in the land, says Adonai. Far from the least to the greatest of them, all are greedy for gains. Prophets and priests alike, they all practice fraud. They dress the wound of my people, but only superficially, saying, this is perfect shalom, when there is no shalom. They should be ashamed of their attestable deeds. They're not ashamed at all. They don't know how to blush. Therefore, when others fall, they too will fall. When I punish them, they will stumble, says Adonai. We'll just take it that far. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read Matthew chapter 12, the entire chapter. It starts on page 1237 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Matthew chapter 12. One Shabbat during that time, Yeshua was walking through some wheat fields. His Talmudim were hungry, his disciples, so they began picking heads of grain and eating them. And on seeing this, the Parushim, the Pharisees, said to him, Look, your Talmudim are violating Shabbat. But he said to them, Well, haven't you read what David did when he and those with him were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he ate the bread of the presence, which was prohibited both to him and to his companions. It is permitted only to the Kohanim, the priests. Or haven't you read in the Torah that on Shabbat, the Kohanim profane Shabbat, and yet are held blameless? I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. If you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you would not condemn the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Shabbat. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. A man there had a shriveled hand. And looking for a reason to accuse him of something, they asked him, Is healing permitted on Shabbat? But he answered, Well, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit on Shabbat, which of you won't take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. And then to the man he said, Hold out your hand. And as he held it out, it became restored, as sound as the other one. But the Parushim, the Pharisees, went out and began plotting about how they might do away with Yeshua. And aware of this, he left the area. Many people followed him, 
He healed them all, but He warned them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through Yeshiel, Isaiah, the prophet. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him. He will announce justice to the Gentiles. He will not fight or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick until he has brought justice through to victory. In him, the Gentiles will put their hope. Then some people brought him a man controlled by demons who was blind and mute, and Yeshua healed him so that he could both speak and see. The crowds were astounded and asked, This couldn't be the son of David, could it? But when the Pharisees heard of it, they said, It's only by Baal the ruler of the demons, that this man drives out demons. However, knowing what they were thinking, Yeshua said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Or every city or household divided against itself will not survive. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. So how can his kingdom survive? Besides, if I drive out demons by Baal's rule, by whom do your people drive them out? So they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can someone break into a strong man's house and make off with his possessions until he first ties up the strong man? After that he can ransack his house. Now those who are not with me are against me, and those who are, do not gather with me are scattering. Now because of this I tell you that people will be forgiven of any sin and blasphemy, but blaspheming the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. One can say something against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but whoever keeps on speaking against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, neither in the Olam Hazeh or the Olam Haba, the world today, the world tomorrow. If you make a good tree, uh, if you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. If you make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You snakes! How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what overflows from the heart. The good person brings forth good things from his store of good. The evil person brings forth evil things from his store of evil. Moreover, I tell you this, on the day of judgment people will have to give account for every careless word they have spoken, for by your own words you will be acquitted, and by your own words you will be condemned. And at this some of the Torah teachers said, Rabbi, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he replied, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign? No, none will be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they turned from their sins to God when Jonah preached. But what is here now is greater than Jonah. The Queen of the South will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Shlomo, Solomon. 
but what is here now is greater than Solomon. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it travels through dry country seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says to itself, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house standing empty, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they come and live there. So that in the end, that person is worse off than he was before. This is how it will be for this wicked generation. He was still speaking to the crowd when his mother and his brothers appeared outside asking to talk with him. But to the one who had informed him, he replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what my Father in heaven wants, that person is my brother and my sister and my mother. This chapter begins with what I call the Sabbath controversy. I have for some time pondered <laughs> how to teach this section of Matthew because it has ramifications that are both immense and terribly misunderstood. Now we're going to spend some time discussing the Sabbath because what you think you know about Sabbath is likely either not sufficient for understanding Matthew's gospel or it is laced with man-made doctrines from both Judaism and Western Roman Christianity. You know, I may get more emails on this subject than any other. The first question I get is usually something like, as a Christian, do I have to obey the law of the Sabbath? The second one after that is, well then what's considered work? Now, the subject of Sabbath is big enough for at least one large book, and it is covered in Jewish law by a number of books and documents. It's quite difficult to teach this effectively because it's a matter that is often smothered in details and nuances that themselves require lengthy explanations. Sometimes must, uh, much must be unlearned about Sabbath before we can learn what God actually says about it. Let's begin with the first verse of chapter 12 and use Matthew's words and Christ's instructions as kind of a, a skeleton framework upon which I hope to flesh out the issue of Sabbath. The opening word of verse 1 makes it clear that the context of everything that happens in this opening scene has to do with observing Shabbat. Shabbat is the Hebrew word from which we get the English word Sabbath. Now, we don't know how near to the time of the actions described in the previous verses from chapter 11 that this is occurring could have been a few hours, could have been a few days, could have been a few weeks. We also don't know exactly where Jesus was, but there's nothing to definitely indicate 
that he had journeyed to a different region of the Holy Land out of the Galilee. But what we do know is this, the Jews hearing what Yeshua was speaking held some pretty rigid views about Shabbat, because the weekly life for Jewish society revolves around it. Some of those views and practices were biblically grounded, some of them were not. Christ and some of His disciples were walking through an unidentified grain field, and obviously the grain was ripe enough to eat. The grain was either of barley or wheat, we can't say with certainty which one it was. So the time of the year this is happening is anywhere from spring to early summer. Matthew says that the disciples Yeshua was with were hungry. Now I doubt that this was the twelve disciples, but rather they were some other disciples, because we don't read of any of the twelve returning from their mission, although we know at some point they must have, and they are not characterized as the disciples, but only as His disciples. They did probably what seemed natural. As they strolled through these grain fields, they just plucked off some heads of grain, rolled them in their hands to expose the edible kernels, and then ate them. But some Pharisees spotted them, and they confronted Yeshua as their leader and master, and at once they told Yeshua that what they, and probably He as well, were doing was violating Shabbat. So what law concerning Shabbat were they violating? There's a lot involved here that is needed as a preparation for understanding the problem. So let's take this from the top. The disciples were walking in someone's field and taking grain from it. However, this is not stealing. It is permissible according to the Torah. Deuteronomy 23, verses 25 and 26, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat enough grapes to satisfy your appetite, but you're not to put any in a basket. When you enter your neighbor's field of growing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you are not to put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. The purpose for this law is twofold. First of all, it's a means for the poverty-stricken to have a means to have food. Second of all, it's for travelers to be able to get a little something to eat on their journey as they go through people's vineyards and fields. But of course, the accusation of the Pharisees had nothing to do with theft or eating. It had to do with it happening on Shabbat. Now Shabbat, Sabbath, is the seventh day of the week. In the old Hebrew system, it is the only day of the week that is given a name instead of a number. Since among Hebrews a day is defined as beginning and ending at sunset, then in Western terms, Sabbath begins Friday at sundown and ends Saturday at sundown. Now do not confuse this with another use of the word Shabbat that we see in the Old Testament. See, in addition to this every weekly Sabbath, there were others 
that were associated with various of the seven biblical feasts of Leviticus. The rules for what is to be done and not done on the weekly seventh-day Shabbat were generally not the same as that for the feast Sabbaths, at least not for all of them. Now, an important question to be answered is, where did Shabbat come from? Where did Shabbat come from? Now, the usual answer from Christians is, it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, yes and no. The Sabbath law came much earlier. I will quote an extended passage so that the context is established. This ought to give you a clue. Genesis 1, verses 27 through uh, Genesis 2, verse 3. So God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God He created them. Male and female He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. Then God said, Here, throughout the whole earth I am giving you as food every seed-bearing plant and every tree with seed-bearing fruit. And to every wild animal, bird in the air, and creature crawling on the earth, in which there is a living soul, I am giving as food every kind of green plant. And that's how it was. God saw everything that He had made. Indeed, it was very good. So there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, along with everything in them. On the seventh day, God was finished with His work which He had made, so He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. God blessed the seventh day, separated it as holy, because on that day God rested from all His work which He had created so that itself could produce. Thus, the seventh day ended creation. It was consecrated by God the Creator. It was set apart at holy at that time. The seventh day would be special. It would be completely unlike all other days of the week. So much later in Exodus, when we read of Moses being given the Ten Commandments, in the fourth one concerning the Sabbath, we read this: Exodus eight, uh, Exodus chapter twenty, verses eight through eleven. Remember the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. You have six days to do labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it you are not to do any kind of work. Not you, your son, your daughter, not your male or female slave, not your livestock. Not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. For in six days God made heaven and earth, the, seventh, the sea and everything in them, but on the seventh He rested. That is why Adonai blessed the day. Shabbat, and he separated it for himself. Now we see a fair amount of detail is offered about this commandment, but let's not overlook the simple part. The very first word. What is that first word? Remember. Oh. So this is not about creating something new. It's about calling to mind something old. It was an ordinance God made long before Mount Sinai. 
He made it a creation. We just read it. And what is really interesting is that while the majority of the mainstream church argues that the law is only for Jews, and therefore Sabbath is only for Jews, so Gentiles just don't have to obey it, there were no Jews around when God originated this commandment. In fact, there was, at most, two people. Unless one was a Jew and the other a Gentile. That's all there were on the face of the earth. There weren't Jews or Hebrews or even Israelites. There weren't even any Gentiles. Because none of these sorts of identities that eventually came as a result of divisions of society even came about until the time of Abraham. Thus, it's rather hard to argue that of all the laws of Moses or even of the Ten Commandments, that the Sabbath is uniquely for the Israelites and their descendants. Now, biblically speaking, Shabbat, the weekly Sabbath, is the day following the sixth day. The math is not hard. That makes it the seventh. There is no other day of the week that is Shabbat. And since Shabbat is actually the name of the seventh day, to claim that there is a Sabbath each week as opposed to the Sabbath is bogus. It would be like saying that there is a Saturday each week, but guess what? We can play Saturday anywhere in the week we like. We can kind of change it around. See, the Christian notion of a first day Sabbath, Sunday, as opposed to the biblically ordained Sabbath, the seventh day, even that's a misnomer. In fact, Christianity, meaning early on the church at Rome, long before it was called the Catholic Church, it didn't change the Sabbath to another day. They abolished it. In six, rather 363 AD at the Council of Laodicea, the church created a long list of new church rules called canons. Many of them were specifically aimed at the customs the Jews followed. Therefore, in their view, Gentile Christians should not. Here are the actual words of the canon that effectively abolished Sabbath for Christians. It's called Canon 29. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's Day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. That's when it happened, folks. The Lord's Day was referring to Resurrection Day, Sunday, as the Romans called the first day of the week. Sunday was so named in the honor of the Sun God. The primary religion of the Roman Empire at that time worshipped the Sun God, and Sunday was declared as the communal day of worship of the Sun God, hence Sunday. See, this is pretty easy stuff. 
The suggestion of the Laodicean Council that if a Christian felt the need to take a day off, do it on Sunday, see, that would put them in tune with the rest of Rome, the non-Christians. But please notice, this was not a change of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, from the 7th to the 1st. It was an abolition of it. It was an abolition of the God-ordained holy day of Sabbath for the Christian church. Instead of the biblical Sabbath, the canon said Christians should rest on the Lord's Day, Sunday. So Sabbath was exchanged for the Lord's Day. They are in no way the same things, nor do they celebrate the same things. Now most modern-day Christian denominations, some even confused by their own doctrines on the matter, will admit at the upper levels of church government that they have never observed Sabbath. But at the lower level, the individual congregation level, the pastor or minister will sort of mumble this Sunday Sabbath, rather than trying to explain what the Bible obviously says about Sabbath. And just as obviously, what is in the minutes of the Council of Laodicea about what the church did to that God-ordained holy day? You know, I've always found it curious. The church members will so easily dismiss the only day in the Bible listed as Shabbat, the seventh day, in exchange for the first day without blinking an eye. That said, some denominations are more forthcoming about it, and they just out and out condemn any Christian for celebrating Sabbath. They see that Sabbath as a thing of the past. They see it as a burden. They even see it as a repudiation of Christ. You know, I can't count the times I've heard Christians say something like, well, I make Tuesday or some other day as my Sabbath, as though they're in the holy day ordination business. In other words, their notion is that God has said to us, ah, just take a day off every week. I don't care which one. Any day you choose is fine, just call it Sabbath. Folks, Sabbath, Shabbat, is directly linked to creation. It is a set-apart day honoring the completion of God's creation. Shabbat is the day after God finished His work of creation, so it would be comical, instead of blasphemous, if we could just understand that by declaring some other day of the week a Sabbath, we're essentially declaring the end of the creation as some other day than God says it was. He ought to know. But this is how far Christianity has gone to distance itself from the Old Testament, from God's laws, and from Jesus' own people, the Jews. We'll continue with understanding Shabbat and Sabbath controversy of Matthew 12 next week.